This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name. And you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening. And thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah. And this is The Beirut Banyan. I'd like to start just with really the last, the last year since the uprising mm-hmm. began, October 2019, and the ability for people to express themselves. And I know the, the pain, the, the pain we're going through, it starts way before last year. But just in terms of people demanding a better life and people expressing themselves in ways that are fairly unusual in the Lebanese context, And I mean this in terms of disenfranchised groups demanding their respect, the average citizen demanding a better life, and people that have personal concerns and personal matters being able to talk about them in ways that I find fairly unusual when it comes to the Lebanese context. And let's start there, just in terms of the taboo surrounding mental health, the taboo, of course, surrounding suicide. Would you link the expression that we've seen in the last year and sort of helping make this a, an issue that people can talk about, people are more comfortable expressing than earlier? Or does it have yeah. nothing, nothing to do really with the protest movement, that these things were changing anyway and they happened to coincide with the last year? Uh, I think it's been an extraordinary year for us, uh, Roni, in Lebanon, Uh, it's been an extraordinary year around the world, but I have to say that Lebanon has been an exception, I think, uh, to so many uh, countries uh, in terms of the different shocks and the different traumas that we've been exposed to for the last year. Um, There has been a movement worldwide uh, to talk more about mental health and to break the stigma and taboo uh, that has surrounded this topic for so many years. Uh, but particularly in Lebanon, in addition to the efforts, you know, that have been uh, done for the past few years, uh, I think, and, and early on in the first few months of the protest, actually two months into the protest, uh, I wrote an article for uh, An-Nahar exactly about the question you just asked me. Because uh, the revolution was a, a time when we saw something very unique uh, happening in terms of mental health in Lebanon. And uh, even though I was spending much uh, less time at the clinic uh, seeing patients, and I know that some of my clients really suffered from my lack of presence uh, because it was the first time that I leave everything and, yeah. and be part of what was going on. What I was seeing in the clinic from so many clients who were coming in and saying that the revolution really opened up so many closed doors for them emotionally. I mean, we were talking about um, uh, down with fear and down with patriarchy and down with the system, but, uh, and we were seeing these slogans being uh, uh, drawn and, and scripted all over the walls of, of Beirut. 
uh, but really, and, and there is the Arabic uh, uh, and the translation of it is uh, down with fear and down with anxiety. And this is exactly what I was seeing in a lot of my uh, clients who were coming into the clinic. Uh, they, many clients who really suffered from anxiety for a very long period of time were now able to uh, speak up. They were going, some people who suffered from social anxiety now were participating in the protests, were uh, yeah. participating in the uh, open lectures. I mean, this opening up of the public spaces on its own it created a safe space for people to begin to express and talk more. So there's definitely a change that we've been seeing in terms of mental health in Lebanon in the last few months. And then things were coupled with COVID-19 yeah. and the catastrophic events of August 4th. And we couldn't not talk about mental health. When things are reaching the tipping point in Lebanon, everything that we've been keeping inside, and that, that includes mental health, but, but everything, all the pain within sort of comes out in a very magical and healthy way. And I like that you're referring to these public space sort of uh, these events where people were reclaiming something that they had lost and they were maybe able to express themselves finally. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm curious, just the issue of taboo, is that, is that something that has been changing in the Lebanese scene for some time? It's just sort of bit by bit, or does it coincide with also people are so frustrated that they see no other alternative, they have to express themselves, that, that there's a tipping point in the Lebanese context? There is a tipping point in the Lebanese context uh, after, after the revolution, but uh, I have to say that the issue of taboo is something that we've been working on for many years now. Mm, mm. Um, I co-founded one of the leading uh, mental health organizations in the country, Embrace, uh, and one of the main missions of Embrace since 2013 has been actually to work on you know, raising awareness, and uh, we started some of the first national awareness campaigns in the country around mental health. And they were really targeted at, you know, breaking the taboo and starting to talk about it. In addition to that, actually, only seven years ago, we, uh, th there, there has been the launching of the National Mental Health Program at the Ministry of Public Health. Right. I mean, before seven years ago, the Ministry of Health did not even recognize mental yeah. health. And so there's been a lot of national efforts taking place so that this uh, stigma is slowly uh, broken down. So I like that it's almost a grassroots effort that over time, this sort of, the, the, the groundwork is already sort of there and you can build on that. And the reason I'm asking you about the sort of the, the growth or let's say the, the foundation, I remember growing up in Beirut and you would never have any discussion around these issues. I mean, even forget family and friends. I mean, even you're too afraid to confront it yourself on an individual level. And the protests, I think this was maybe maybe in November last year, there was a frank discussion at Riwak and Marim Khayel in the basement. I think maybe a hundred people or so showed up to talk about their own individual stories that had to do with depression, anxiety, stress, and some even shared their sort of innermost uh, experiences and suicide attempts. And I mean, 100, 100 people engaged and, and supporting each other. And for me, this was astonishing. Yeah. I, I, and that's my own life. I've seen that sort of take hold. And I, I like that you, you brought up Embrace. And I'll, I'll be honest, I, uh, I mean, I, I, <laughs> this is something that I used to think of as sort of 
something that you do only in extreme circumstances. And I think this is also a byproduct of not being able to discuss these things. You only go there as the last resort. And I like that it's a very friendly atmosphere that you don't have to wait to the last second to call this number. And it's yeah. 1564, if I'm not mistaken, that's the four digit. Uh, yeah. So can we go and maybe talk about the hotline itself and, mm-hmm. and whether its inception was sort of, was it born out of individual experiences that you were facing, that people were calling you and maybe that you didn't see that you could handle all of this, you saw it as something bigger? Or, and wh- where does it come from exactly, that hotline idea, mm. at least in the Lebanese story? And, and the reason I'm curious is because the population is small. People mm-hmm. recognize each other. People sometimes even recognize each other's voices. So there's Correct. a bit of a concern <laughs> there. And I, I yeah. wonder if, if, I mean, how does all that tie into trying to do this in the Lebanese scene? Actually, the journey of the uh, hotline Roni was a quite uh, uh, one that really started also very much in a grassroots way. Mm. I mean, when we started Embrace in 2013, our mission was really to focus on mental health. And we all know that the most uh, difficult consequence that someone can reach in, in terms of mental health if, they, if, uh, if the illness is not treated, if they don't pay attention to the symptoms they're going through, is potentially... Uh, suicide and you just mentioned we're not used to in our society to talk about mental health Uh, but when we started some of these grassroots movements uh, myself and uh, my colleagues and friends the co-founders of the organization uh, uh, many of us are mental health professionals and uh, many of us also started uh, embrace because out of the uh, words and uh, the experiences of uh, our own clients and people we've worked with who have experiences with mental health issues. Yeah. And one of the main things they said is, you know what, uh, as a client, you know, I'm coming, I'm doing my uh, homework to get better, I'm seeking treatment. But when I go back out in the society, I'm not being able to receive uh, the care that I need from my family or the support that I need from my family and friends. And this is because the community was still, as you're saying, not open and accepting of talking about mental health problems. And uh, many years back when we decided to uh, gauge the topic of suicide, actually, that was also a big challenge for us because we knew that if the society is not ready to talk about mental health, it's definitely not gonna be ready to talk about suicide. Right. But we decided to take that challenge on. And um, we started one of these walks uh, at uh, 5 a.m. in the morning. I, you know, I'm glad, I, 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 I sometimes I shouldn't be up that early. And then I witnessed this myself. And I, I really was a yeah. bit, sur- I was very surprised. That's determination. So yeah, let, let's yeah. talk about that, actually. Those 5 a.m. walks and what, what the purpose was. Yeah, so the, the 5 a.m. walk actually is, uh, it's an idea that actually comes from the States. Uh, they have these walks called Out of the Darkness, where mm. they mm. raise awareness on suicide. And it's a memorial walk for people who have lost loved ones uh, mm-hmm. to suicide. And, uh, and one of the co-founders uh, of, of Embrace, uh, who, uh, who's a dear friend of mine, uh, his wife had lost her brother to suicide many, many years ago. And... Um, this experience uh, has touched the family. And even though it's been more than 20 years, uh, we know that family members often uh, have difficulty grieving death by suicide uh, yeah. many years after they lose their loved ones. 
And uh, so really, uh, Embrace has always taken on challenges. And when we decided to take on this 5 a.m. walk to try to support families who have lost people to suicide, the first year we had this walk, five, uh, around 50 people joined. Uh, a bit less than 50 maybe the first year we did it. And again, it's 5 a.m. in the morning. I, it's, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a challenge. <laughs> yeah. But uh, last year when we did this walk uh, in 2019, 2020 was canceled due to COVID. Right. Uh, by 2019, we were doing almost our sixth walk, uh, sixth annual walk, and almost 350 people join wow. each year now wow. uh, from, from less than 50 members. And uh, this is what, what, what we talk about when, when we say grassroots. We're building right. a community that's slowly uh, becoming more accepting of these issues. And when we started doing these walks every year, Ronnie, what we started hearing from people is, you know, why don't we have a hotline in Lebanon? I see. Like all the other countries. Right. And, right. and uh, definitely this was something that was of interest to us. And we started working slowly on uh, building the grants for it and uh, preparing the community to receive such a service. And this is, was through talking more about mental health and suicide. And um, when we started three years ago, we were getting around 20, 30 calls a month. Now we get around 700 calls a month. Oh, oh wow. So, so, this, so this is regular yeah. business. People are comfortable sort of, and, and I'm, I'm assuming this discretion comes with it, that there's no sort of there's nothing known about the person per se. It's just sort of, of a friend. Course. Right. So that yes. anonymity, is that really the, the, the lifeline, I guess, for this lifeline that people will, nobody will know who they are. They're comfortable just being anonymous and there's no judgment. Does that sort of, of make it easier? And, and that Lebanon is a very collectivist society. Mm-hmm. People talk, people share information and they, People get judged and there's a lot of shame involved. And I think that's really where it comes from, that there's deep shame when you're stigmatized and something that's beyond your control. So is, is that the magic that nobody knows? And I hope I got this right, that mm-hmm. it's not the same person who speaks each time. If you call back no. again, there's a guarantee that you don't have a emotional bond per se with, with the hotline operator. Is that, is that correct? Correct. Correct. Okay. Yes. Mm. And many, many people actually request to talk to the same person yeah. because th- that bond is created. But we, we make sure that we try to avoid that right? Uh, because everybody is trained to give the same uh, empathic, uh, active listening and befriending skills. It's a right. befriending process, really, uh, from the start. And um, and along with, you know, what, what you're talking about, creating movements and building community. When we first started the hotline, Ronnie, we had around eight people apply to become a lifeline volunteer. Eight people. This is how we started. Nobody heard before of, you know, how am I going to be an operator on a suicide hotline? Right. Uh, today, uh, every training, which we hold three times a year, uh, more than 50 to 60 people apply. And we only select around 25 people every training. And today our team consists of uh, 94 uh, operators uh, who are running the hotline. And um, so actually that's also uh, a sign that people are also being opening up to not only talking about things, but also volunteering for this mission. You know, I witnessed this myself in maybe November or December during the protests in Martyrs Square. My co-host who was interviewing protesters in Martyrs Square stumbled upon a volunteer. Uh, 
from Embrace. And she spoke about her, her passion, her enthusiasm, and her commitment to Embrace. And I was really, I was taken aback that this is, it's finally out in the open. And this is something you cannot retreat from. It's almost a one-way street. It's very difficult to imagine uh, the, the issue of mental health and, and in extreme cases, suicide being sort of shelved again. I think once it's open, it's done. And I, I want to pick your brain on why this took so much time in the Lebanese context. And the reason I'm, I'm curious is growing up, it's sort of, uh, I think it's anecdotal. You'd always sort of try to find the good and compare Lebanon to, store, to other countries that are maybe way sort of way more comfortable lifestyle. Case in point is maybe Sweden or Finland and you always sort of say this anecdotal thing that, yeah, but Lebanon suicide is the rates are very low. And then Scandinavian countries, they're very high. So it must be really a nightmare to live in, in Sweden and Finland. Sort of silly, yeah. silly referencing. But why is it that in the Lebanese context, even though it's, a, it's an issue and it's, it's a sort of an issue that has to be addressed, but the rates are not so high compared to European countries? And I hope I got this right, that even with all the issues that are happening in Lebanon, and we'll get into some of them that are, that are very sensitive, the rates have not increased, that it's sort, yeah. of, sort of a consistent rate. So mm -hmm. what is it about the Lebanese context, I say, uh, uh, that keeps the numbers lower than other places, but also mm. took us a long time to get there, to actually talk yeah. about it? Uh, so as you said, uh, Lebanon is very much of a collective society. So uh, what we see is that even though there's a big taboo around mental health, when somebody does become, uh, does fall mentally ill in a family, the whole family uh, takes on the responsibility of usually caring for that person, right. even if it's a mental illness, especially when there's an attempt of suicide. We've seen this happening in many families who uh, knew nothing about uh, mental health and actually judged uh, people with mental illness, but if somebody in the family falls uh, ill or attempts suicide, those families come in and they want to know more and they want to understand what happened with their family member right. because we are very collectivist. And uh, that's why also it, it plays a protective factor. In uh, European countries, one of the highest risk factors for suicide, as you mentioned, even though uh, they have uh, a relatively good stand of living, is actually loneliness and isolation, right. which we don't have uh, very high in Lebanon. <laughs> right. uh, even if, I, I think really... even if you wanted to, it's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> which is, again, it's a double-edged sword because mm. also a lot of the risk factors for suicide in Lebanon from what we've seen on the hotline is uh, or are stressors related to family discord. And many people right. call the hotline with these kinds of stressors, you know, uh, not being accepted in the family or having difficulties. So we, we really have very complex and enmeshed uh, family relationships and dynamics in Lebanon. We're all over each other, but at the same time, um, protective of each other. But at the same time, we have a lot of conflict. We don't always understand one another. Right. Uh, and we don't allow the other to really express about their, uh, express their emotions. We care for each other by just being anxious uh, for one another. I ask you, is it, is it an issue of escape that a lot of times you have people that are desperate to change their circumstance and, and they're not able to? And I guess family discord would be the most pressing example that you're stuck. There's really nowhere you can go. 
I mean, forget Lebanon, forget the politics, forget even the economic crisis, just at home, if you're suffering at home, that you have to find a way to break free. And that's a very risky endeavor. And you internalize the pain instead. So is it is that is that the primary issue, at least when the average, let's say the average, the average call, does it fall in that family conflict zone? Or is it is it sort of a variety of issues that are not related? It's a, it's a variety of issues. Mm, uh, mm. Family dynamics uh, in Lebanon are quite complex, as I mentioned. Mm. And uh, it's a little bit different than, you know, Western countries where people really have it easier in terms or individuals at a certain age. Actually, yeah. the, you see the parents, they tell the children, you know, get out of the house, go on, find a living for yourself. And this is not uh, the situation in Lebanon. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, we get so many, we hear so many different kinds of stressors. There could be relationship problems, there could be conflict. Uh, we hear about abuse in, in the family uh, as well taking place, whether it's uh, gender-based violence. We get a lot of child protection cases where we have to actually intervene through the Ministry of Social Affairs to also ensure safety of the children who are getting abused. Uh, we get a lot, around 17% of our calls to the hotline are from persons from the LGBTQA uh, population who are ex experiencing all kinds of stressors uh, related to family and the household situation. And uh, so, so it really varies to a, to a great extent. And these are the groups that you saw in numbers during the protests. And that was fascinating that almost yes. ev every crowd that was hiding in the shadows was sort of out in the open and, and confident. I, I want to talk about maybe the, one of the more sensitive issues that has happened recently. It's the aftermath of the blasts, the, the, the port blasts. And for me, this is, I mean, the word trauma, I think, is used a bit too much. That yeah. not everything is a traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. And I associate trauma with individual experiences, less to do with collective. But mm -hmm. then, to me, this is a clear example of a collective traumatic experience and mm. how does embrace or, or any group that's trying to handle these sort of very difficult issues how does it tackle this because it's it's something that's beyond all of our control and it's mm. almost this is I'm curious because this links to the other issues that Lebanese are sort of protesting that's the political situation and, and corruption and everything that goes with it so is is there really much that a group like Embrace or anyone sort of trying to take a call that they can sort of help somebody out of this nightmare? Or are things sometimes, are, are there things that are too big? And that is, I mean, that is such a huge, terrible event that yeah. it would be unfair to expect somebody to be able to relieve someone else from this type of pain. There are many dimensions to this. Mm. I have to say that in the first few weeks of the blast, uh, we did get a lot of calls, and um, even though uh, the team, and sometimes I cannot talk about the team without, you know, uh, getting quite emotional, uh, but the team uh, really divided its effort between being on the ground and in the call center. And uh, I cannot tell right. you what a, a few chaotic, catastrophic months uh, they have been. Uh, for us, actually, since August 4th, uh, I haven't taken one day uh, off uh, from August 4th to today, uh, planning to do so in December. 
<laughs> and <laughs> planned. Like it's a planned, yeah. you know, exit exactly. later, later. And, and we yeah. both know December will come and it'll be either yeah, shorter it will be or postponed. postponed. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But so, so really, the uh, uh, the team is very skilled in befriending, which is something that very few people have. So in addition to being on the ground and helping in the cleanup process, they were going into people's homes. And while they were helping in the cleanup process, they were engaging in the type of conversations that they do over the phone, which right. I think right. is also very different than any kind of, you know, uh, psychological first aid or emergency aid that's being, that was given in any catastrophe. And in addition to that, they were spending 17.5 uh, hours in the call center uh, which is our current hours of operation. In the first few weeks, we did get so many calls from people who, you know, I, I remember a call from a lady who was really worried about opening uh, the doors, uh, yeah. the windows of her house. Right. And she had been uh, at home and without opening the windows for a week. And she had around a 30 minute call with one of our operators. And by the end of the call, uh, she told her, you know what, I'm I feel so much better now. You made me feel comfortable and safe and I'm going to go up and just open the windows. And uh, so, so yes, I do believe that there's a lot that we can do for each other in, in crises like this and natural disasters. And uh, the operators have been doing a lot. But uh, again, this is a disaster that's also way beyond us and definitely yeah. cannot talk about just trauma without being able to talk about uh, social justice as a way for us to heal from this. And that ties into the whole political story. And I, yeah. you know, I, I, I want to add something here that I think it's all the more challenging to talk about these issues and have that as the primary source of therapy. And then the, uh, in my opinion, trying to avoid the knee jerk reaction, which is get some medication and deal with it. And, and yeah. I want to talk about this issue. And I, I'm not being hard on psychiatry here. On the contrary, I just want to elevate psychology. And the reason I say this is because yeah. I'm quite proud to say that I have a bachelor's degree in psychology. I know that doesn't get you a job. You need to pursue yeah. more than a bachelor's. I know that. <laughs> but what, my first degree, my first uh, undergraduate degree was in psychology. And we talked about that. And we sort of explored talk therapy, counseling, and is, is that, in your opinion, the primary sort of the primary medicine, if you will, that this is mm -hmm. something that should be explored before jumping into the what we used to see all the time, unfortunately, which is you could buy Xanax at the counter from a pharmacy. Or mm -hmm. I even I even had experiences where people would deliver Xanax pharmacy sort of yeah. Xanax on the phone. I think that has stopped for the most part. That's sort of that maybe dates me a bit, but that's not that long ago. And you could mm -hmm. get psychotropic medication without a prescription and it was being abused. Xanax is sort of that sort of maybe the most common used and the people using it to sleep as well. So just in terms of psychology and talk therapy, is that really the first, is that the primary uh, step before going anywhere else? And is that really the challenge for Embrace, being able to elevate this to the forefront? so that you don't have to hide with your medicine, you can talk. Uh, the slogan of Embrace, actually, Roni, is talking saves lives. Okay. So yeah. we definitely put talking on the forefront. Yeah. Uh, but as a, a, 
psychologist and uh, who's somewhat eclectic in her approach as well, we really believe in the biopsychosocial model. Okay. So it really depends on the severity uh, of uh, the symptoms that the person ex- is experiencing. Right. And sometimes medications are needed. And sometimes medications are needed because they can uh, help in fastening the process so that someone can benefit uh, faster and more efficiently from talk therapy. So I see that they yes. many times they come hand in hand. Mm-hmm. But for, uh, for the non-severe illnesses, when, when symptoms are in their mild or moderate form, uh, the first line of intervention is definitely uh, talk therapy. Right. And when, when the psychologist figures that sometimes it's being difficult for the person to progress and, uh, through, through talk therapy and they need that push or that addition from the medication, then we definitely recommend it. And now I'm going to ask you the very difficult question. And I won't take much more of your time, but this I saved the, the most difficult for last. We're both seeing Lebanon change dramatically. Okay. And for in some ways, it's changing for the better. And I think we kind of hint at that, that expression and, and sort of elevating our concerns without shame, I think is one of those issues. We've done that. Whether or not we get to a better place, I think, is secondary. But people are able to talk now and confront their own pain. And then we've seen the very dire circumstance as well. And we're watching a country that's uh, paralyzed for the most part. Mm -hmm. As somebody who's committed to the country and as somebody who's, I think, committed to more than mental health. I mean, you're, you're talking about social justice and making that part of the story. Do you see things moving forward in the right direction? in the near future, not the distant future where in 50 years we can talk about all types of hypotheticals. But I mean, for the moment, with everything that is happening, do you see positive change on the horizon? Or are we dealing with something that is maybe almost medium term paralysis? And for better or worse, we're going to have to address our concerns all the more for the for the time being. And one of them is mental health. And just just your own reflections on where things are moving. And I ask you because I think I'd, I've never been able to ask somebody in this mm. position on their opinions on where things are moving. I've had yeah. political pundits. I've had ec- economists. I've had sort of people that make a living off of exploring the standard issues. Yeah. <laughs> never had this conversation with mental health. So I'd, I'd love yeah. your thoughts. Uh, it's, it's a little bit... Um, yeah, and I don't want to be an, um, an analyst as well because, you know, uh, I'm neither a political analyst uh, nor, as they say, a psychologist can tell the, predict the future and tell us where we're going. What are they um, called? Uh, the, I forgot their names. The people. Yeah. Uh, fortune teller, right. <laughs> fortune teller, exactly. Um, but uh, being someone who's more and more involved in uh, in the public affairs and especially after the revolution, uh, we are witnessing that change is quite difficult in the midterm um, time and uh, the midterm span. I think um, we have a few difficult years before we begin to see uh, the change that we want to see. Uh, but uh, as you mentioned, I'm one of those persons who's uh, really committed uh, to staying here and to engaging in this uh, fight. And I do see that in a few years, we will be able to uh, get to better outcomes that we look forward to. But knowing that, 
uh, and knowing and seeing the scene out there, I think we will definitely have a few difficult years. Uh, the next two years are going to be a, a marathon towards the first <laughs> elections. Yes. And, right. uh, and even uh, that is going to be just, you know, the tip of uh, the iceberg in terms of our fight. I mean, we have this elections and the one in, in six years from now. Those are two big battles that we're going to have to work really hard for. That's well said. I'll, I'll just uh, end it with a personal story. Uh, I have an uncle who committed suicide in, in Lebanon. And there was a lot of talk about how to explain it, how to sort of share it among, among friends and among, among strangers, how to address the burial concerns, everything that comes with suicide in, uh, in, in particular in Lebanon. And I found it interesting that there was some conversation about the, about the illness, about the medication that was being taken, about all the sort of all the stresses that led to that moment and maybe the missed opportunity. But regardless, it was something that we were able to talk as, as a family and sort of among relatives. And even that I found to be a step in the right direction that this is something I couldn't imagine being done before. And I'm not yeah. that old, I'm turning 40. So, but I have some perspective at least growing up in Lebanon when you would not even talk about it in your immediate family, let alone an uncle or an aunt. Now you can. And I think it's looked at it looked at positively. So I, I for better or worse, I think uh, that that small small improvements here and yeah. there do matter. And I hope that uh, I look forward to the good work you're doing and then sort of uh, expanding on that. And it means a lot to be able to gauge your mind on, on these issues. So I won't Tony, take. I've any... seen uh, I've seen so many. Thank you for sharing that actually because. Uh, one of the things that pains me the most is when I see um, family members in the clinic who have uh, lost someone uh, to suicide. As a clinician, I've worked with, uh, with clients who have thought about suicide uh, uh, and contemplated it and went through the pain of it. Uh, but there's nothing more painful than when a client comes in and they've lost someone. And that grieving process really takes a huge toll and nobody yeah. understands that it's a different grieving process uh, than any other death. Uh, uh, so I, I think this is one of the main things we need to keep working on. Definitely. I agree. And I, I'll just add to that, that I think it people talk about untimely loss all the time that sort of mm -hmm. happened out of nowhere. And you can attribute that to all types of death. Somebody could mm -hmm. fall ill rapidly and, and, and die. And, Suicide is not just untimely. It's not that it just happens out of nowhere. Yeah. I, liken, I liken it to unjust loss as well. That this is a, it's, it's not a natural death. This is in a way sure. somebody killing themselves. So it, I think it, it, it sort of goes into that sphere as well. And maybe that yeah. makes it harder to address and all the harder to talk about. So that, that's also a very positive change that you True. can more and more. And yeah, True. I, yeah, well... Thank you, Mia, and uh, thank you for staying thank awake. You. Your dog was well thank behaved the whole time. <laughs> yes, and, indeed. And let's just <laughs> something very magical happened. Man atashil internet, The first five times were failure. This time it worked. So there we go. <laughs> 4G. <laughs> well said. <laughs> it was a pleasure, Roni. Thank you thank for you, hosting me. And um, looking forward to having more of these conversations live when you're in Lebanon. Thank you, Mia.
Thanks for listening. And a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. <laughs>